Hello and welcome again, everyone, to the Global Migration Podcast Season 2. This podcast is available thanks to the support of UBC Center for Migration Studies. We thank them for their support. My name is Mohamed Saleh. I am your host. And today I will be interviewing Diare Khalid Marouf from Iraq, Kurdistan, and Akhbarit Bene from Eritrea. Both are journalists who came here as refugees and both have such interesting stories. So if I start with you, Akhbarit, I want you to tell me about yourself. I know that maybe your name means telling, Akhbarit. Maybe that's not, but in Arabic, your name means the one who tells, the one who shares. So I'd like you to share with me who you are. Tell me a bit about yourself, just a brief introduction so our listeners can know you. Hi, my name is Akhbarit Bene. As you said, I am from East Africa, Eritrea, the new nation in Africa. My name, as you said, it means Akhbarat in Tigrinya means to she honors all in our culture. I, I was a journalist in the new country of Eritrea, the, the new station that we formed after liberation. We had a long struggle in Eritrea, 30 years of war to get our self-reliance for our independence. Then in 1991, when Eritrea get free from the colonial government of Ethiopia, we had the first time TV station in Eritrea. And I was one of the 30 journalists which just started the television station in Eritrea. So I worked until uh, for uh, 22 years as a journalist reporter in Eritrean Television Ministry of Information. Unfortunately, our country falls in the dictatorship of the leader of the front, the PLF front, the one who fought for liberation. So the country became very ugly uh, as a journalist. Maybe for you, you were involved, and I can hear it in your voice, you were very enthusiastic about liberating the country from the Ethiopian occupation. And suddenly you get liberated, but it feels like betrayal because now some general is going to take and kidnap the fruits of the revolution and establish a dictatorship, which is something that you and your countrymen wanted, but also it drove you out of the country. Yes, as you said, the old enthusiasm we had as a people of Eritrea to build our country, we had a betrayal from this government. That's why, as a journalist, we were targeted to not tell the truth to the people. So, as in every country run by dictatorship, the first target is a journalist. So, that's why I flee my country and I'm now a political refugee in Canada. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. Now, I'm moving to my other guest, Diari Marouf from Kurdistan, Iraq from a place that also suffered from dictatorship. Diyar, please, in a few words, introduce yourself to our listeners and who you are, where you come from, and what brings you to our show. Thank you, Mohammed, for having me. My name is Diyar Marif. I came from Iraqi Kurdistan. I was a journalist in my home country. I worked with the TV as a documentary researcher. Before I came to Canada, I worked with some people, some journalists, we campaigned against the referendum of for independence of Kurdistan, but they call as betrayal. I wasn't safe there and I wasn't unstable. 
This brought me here. After I moved to Canada in 2017, I have been writing as a nonfiction. Diar, in your written piece, you use the title Saddam, the Fallen God. One thing that struck me is how you compared him to a god, but he wasn't the good god. He was the god of evil. And also, your story is so thought-provoking to think about internal displacement, how in your life, your parents were not sure when you were born, and they were actually estimating it by the approximation of when their relatives died and how you were born in a camp. And all of this happened maybe a few miles from your home, a few miles from your village. What was the circumstances created by the Saddam government that made you call him the god of evil? Yeah, Saddam's regime used several missiles to destroy not only Kurdish people, all of the Iraqi people who were against Saddam Hussein, who they didn't give up for him. But he did, in particular with Kurdish people, he wanted to destroy the Kurdish people there, their culture, their life, in a word, in their identity. For this, um, he used several methods. He attacked people. He used several assimilation of uh, Kurdish culture. He just tried to bring their Kurdish mind. He wanted to show people he, he, is, he was like a god. But this behavior couldn't uh, make people believe him. However, for a short time, people afraid of him, people scared of him, including me when I was a child. But later, those methods, those, uh, the consequence was different for me. It made me more stronger. I believe that every dictator will be overthrown. And this makes me like a stronger person, more confident. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. And now moving back to Akhbarat, I would like to talk to you more about your story and the interesting points that you raised of how your nation was fighting occupation from an outside source. And then later you got liberation, but the dictator created a dictatorship. Now, thinking about you and your personal life story, you were in a situation that you were forced to go out of your country. And unfortunately, you didn't have a passport, which added more troubles to your story. And then you had to leave the country illegally without any papers. Can you tell me more about that passport that saved your life, that was your sister's, and yes. how it led you to freedom? Yes, that is, uh, the problem is when we were a country, we won the war in 1991, Eritrean Revolution won the war against Ethiopia to make it uh, legal, to make it, uh, you know, it's the people, it was the people self-determination. So we didn't, the government as Eritreans, we didn't only win the war, but we did a big referendum. So Eritrean people vote 99.8% want the liberation. Then we had our own identity and our own passport. So as I mentioned in my story, I said, when we have a piece of paper that IID or passport that recognize us as Eritrean, for us, it doesn't mean only a piece of paper because for that one, we had to struggle for 30 years of war, really bitter war. 
and we had to suffer a lot to get that piece of paper. The problem is when the government became a dictator, the first year, you know, we had some problem as a new nation that didn't make us weak or uh, our enthusiasm to rebuild our country, all the people, all Eritreans, we were handed with hand to work, to build, to make bigger our country. But suddenly it's the administration, the dictatorship that broke all our hope, our desire, our vision. So as a journalist, before I came to live as a refugee here, I traveled to Germany, to United States, in every part to take a training. We were taking training all over the world. So it was not my first time to leave the country with my Eritrean passport. But when the government started to put in prison every Eritrean that asks for democracy, asks for election, for stability to change for a democratic country, then what happened is it was not allowed to fly, to leave the country because everybody who left the country, it doesn't come back. So in order to prohibit us to flee the country or to leave the country, the government knows when, uh, when we cross Sudan or Ethiopia, you need a passport for sure. Otherwise, he cannot travel. So whoever he traveled outside, we have to give our passport to the, our Ministry of Information, whoever is the leader, he had to return back. So we had the passport, but was confiscated with the government. He held it with the government. So he cannot leave unless he allows you to leave. That is what the reason I didn't have a passport. So when I was in Sudan, had trouble because once you leave the country, everywhere you go, even if you want to go to the hotel or to travel, you need a passport. Without this piece of paper, you cannot go anywhere. So my family as well, they were all emigrated because of the war. They were, my siblings was outside. So they were trying everything possible to find some documents to travel from Sudan and uh, get away from the country. So at last, my sister, she sent me her passport. And was a risk for her and a risk for me too. So I would I wouldn't take put her life in risk as mine was in real risk. So I, uh, I was surprised and I didn't want to use her passport because in case they find me the security they will you know I don't want to drag with my problems too. But she said no if if something happened to you then I couldn't leave. I have to do everything possible. I don't care if I get in danger, but I have to try whatever possible. One of the unbelievable things I read uh, in your story is that when you left your country and made it to Sudan, you know, the journey was terrible. Mm -hmm. And after making it, you didn't dare leave in your house. You stayed in Sudan for like three, four months. I don't know, but you didn't even go to the city because you didn't have papers. But why even like when you had your sister's passport, you didn't even use it and go outside. You were still captured your body was outside of Eritrea but your mind was still in prison yes how did you get out of that prison yeah that is the complex because you know that uh, when I stayed in in Khartoum as you said it's uh, it's hard to describe it because in these three months I never ever left the country and the first time when I when I get that passport even with the passport with my sister I know that is not my passport so Every attempt I can be, you know, to be dangerous. So I don't want to put her life and my life too. So I kept until I went to the airport. And if you know, after three months, he asked me how it looks uh, cartoon. I cannot describe it. In fact, the first uh, time when I 
left to go to the airport, I was scared to get, uh, you know, psychologically, I don't know how I can describe it, but you get, uh, you get scared, fear to any person that you see on the streets because you feel like traumatized. I was traumatized. Everything make me like everybody's enemy. Everybody's watching me. My life was in danger everywhere it goes. So that is my uh, my feeling. Even I had the passport, and I know it's not mine. I know it's something that if it works, you know, I use it as a result of desperation. Otherwise, you know, everything is not mine. If somebody looks closely, then I don't know. I don't know what it done. I just was trying whatever it comes to get out of here. And I, uh, as I mentioned, my story is just a, a miracle. But I make it through. It's a uh, <laughs> something that is a magic thanks yeah. for sharing i i want you to tell me all about the trip diare now back to you you described to us and to the listeners how saddam made it very bad to live for you and for the kurdish people i want you to tell me more about your story where did you go from there your parents lost their home gave birth to you in a camp you grew up in a society governed by dictatorship even one of the things that i read reminded me of my own childhood like some of the things you said of how every school certificate you have it has his face on it same thing i grew up in a dictatorship where mm-hmm. you have the dictator's face everywhere but later in your story you criticize the opposing parties to saddam some even like kurdish parties were copying the same tactics and the same techniques that saddam was doing and you know it's really interesting to have you here on the show to tell us about how sometimes people when trying to fight and like defend themselves against something bad they become bad themselves and they like become the mm-hmm. same thing that they are fighting would you please tell us more about that yeah Thank you Mohammed. Actually uh, it was a bad story when I I was born in a camp. The first thing I remember was during the war. I played in the like some ruined house there and I fell down on the place of um weapons and I get some slide on my uh, face. So after that I, it was the first story I can remember during the war. Uh, and after that, I, I was suffering with my family during Saddam's uh, reign until it was overthrown in 1991 in, in the north of Iraq, uh, later called Kurdistan. People hoped and dreamed have a better life, a diverse, a deserved life, build their hope, return to their village because Saddam Hussein reunited uh, 5,000 Kurdish people on the border area with Turkey, Syria, and Iran. But they, they finally, they found nothing with the Kurdish authority uh, because um, it was, I, I believe, Kurdish authority more, must more damage than Saddam Hussein for the Kurdish people, uh, given that Saddam Hussein couldn't destroy Kurdish culture, Kurdish identity, Kurdish language and Kurdish hope, Kurdish belief, but Kurdish party doing now. They do, I, I believe they, they do more dangerous than Saddam Hussein. Corruption, brutality, outlaw, and many things. Saddam Hussein did something good for people. At least they could survive. They could eat, they, had to, they could work. But this, in these days, the blackest chapter in the Kurdish history because of the Kurdish party in terms of expression, freedom, journalism, writing, 
criticizing. Just a last week, Kurdish authority, I can say the Kurdish Prime Minister in Iraqi Kurdistan, Masrur Barzani, jailed and sentenced six of my friends just for criticizing the government. One of them published an article in 2015, jailed him for this article after six years. They say he's a spy for some countries. He's a betrayer. You know, the, the journalists only criticize his government or his Kurdish authority six years back. One of them participated in a demonstration. The prime minister called him is an Iranian spy, Turkish spy. It wasn't true, but he didn't allow anyone to criticize his government, his power, his authority, his family. The situation of Kurdistan day by day get worse. When I was there, I, I criticized them the way former Kurdistan president Masoud Barzani wanted to have a referendum for Kurdistan independence, but it wasn't for it, it did for himself. He was in power for 10 years. In the term of law, he finished his term, but he, he wanted to be staying power for long. He tried to use the referendum for himself. We criticized that. We against his way, his missiles for staying power, not referendum. Because I believe it's a right of people. It's a democracy. If people want to become independent or as part of Iraq, it's not my issue. I cannot decide on behalf of people. But when I did, we did this, I, we revealed the, the idea behind the referendum. I was called betrayer. The politician called us more dangerous than ISIS, Daesh, terrorists. They told us we had no place in the country. We had to give up or go to other, another country. This is a situation of Kurdistan, make all people stay in a jail. Just last week, I, I talked with my mom, Mohammed. I just I asked her, what's going there? She said she was more happier during Saddam's reign than now. However, she lost to her brother. She was suffering. She replaced it in many places because of Saddam's uh, power. He, she became homeless. But after 30 years, 35 years, she wishes Saddam's regime came back. That's a really is a disaster. I cannot describe anymore about the situation, how people in Kurdistan live. This is so unfortunate. And I am hearing the same sentiment in both stories we have today, how you are in both places of the world, mm -hmm. in Kurdistan, Iraq, and in Eritrea. You had your occupier out and you thought you are yeah. going to be maybe better, but then some people from your own people take over and then they block everybody else. And that's, that's very wrong. And that's what make people like you and like our other guests just leave yeah. because we don't feel um, included. Uh, I would like to continue with you, Diara. Uh, and how did you escape Kurdistan? Why did you decide to leave? And mainly like your journey to Canada, the transition from that part of the world to here. I really didn't want to leave Kurdistan. I had many goals to stay there, just maintain my journalism as a documentary session with the TV. I try to share my idea, send my message, my, my views with people over there. But unfortunately, they, they didn't allow us to stay there uh, because uh, with my friends, were against their, their lawful authority, corruption, not themselves. We had no problem with themselves, but with the, with the way how they manage people, how they let people, and um, day by day, I was unstable. 
I was scared and I called betrayal. I called spy with my friends. We, we really suffered there. They didn't allow me to teach at any university. Uh, they, I was called danger man because not only me, man, like most of the people worked like me who wants to have a dignity, have a freedom, how try what we want against the corruption. We had three choices. Uh, we had to give up, be part of them and be silent. They would give us a good money. Or we had to die because it was not possible for us to write or leave the country. I, I chose the last one because I believe in one day I could go out there after them. Like when most of the regimes, most of the dictators destroyed, people repatriated, went back to their home country. However, now I, I kind of like my, my country. I love it. I am here. I want to serve here. It was difficult for me really moment to live here. I faced culture shock when I compared uh, my life, how I did in, in my home country, what I did here. I believe that people in my home country needed me to stay with them, to support them. And sometimes I called them, I was betrayed. That's why I leave them. I had to die there but without them. The journey for me was tough because I never planned it to leave. But when I came here, I adopted Canadian culture. I am happy to interact with the people. I share my story with them. And uh, I realized that I can be any like a journalist writer if I try hard. There is no any barrier. I am realizing my life here. Yeah. I like it and I want to educate myself and try to just maintain my journalism here. Thank you so much for sharing. And now moving to Akhbarit. And I'm going to ask you about the same thing, about your journey. Your journey is a little bit different because we know already that you received help from your sister. She sent you a Canadian passport, her Canadian passport, and you left with it from Sudan to Germany and to Canada. You were stopped at all places. Your passport was looked at at all three places, but you passed. You made it here. If you can tell us a bit about the journey, but more importantly, about what did you find here? Allow me, I will uh, read the last part of the passport now. Now I had make it through it, the last gate. I keep walking to the security gate. This is when I arrived in Canada at the Vancouver airport and talking. The officers politely asked, please, your passport. I couldn't believe it. Again, next in line, please, he said as he pointed at me. While I was wondering what to do next, a person behind me said, please, your passport. I went to the gate and handed the customs officer my sister's passport. He gave me quite a look and then asked me to follow him to a separate small room. He shut the door behind and then started checking my handbag, checking each piece, then the inside and the outside of my bag. He still was holding my passport, but I noticed that he never looked it again. Maybe he was assumed to find such a semi-empty pass bag with only a few not costly things in there. Thanks to the American film I had watched back home, I felt I knew what is going to Maybe he's looking some illegal things like drugs. Finally, he let me go, but I was not sure if he really meant it. I was free to go. I left the airport without looking back, almost running. Once I got out in the street, my body started shaking. Here I was, 
I had reached my dream destination, but I was so confused. What next? I hadn't predicted this moment. I made it through all the obstacles and anyone would have celebrated success. But now what? Once you get in, then you don't know, you know, and what now? That is what came my question. What now? You are here in a known world for me. Nobody I know here. So I don't know what to do. Then I start new worries, new uh, frustration and new helplessness, you know, here. And I just, you know, keep crying. You are so fragile and you keep crying. And I ask Sam and then, you know, I went through lots and then they take me to one shelter, Kimbris, a refugee welcome place. I stayed there. And you learn that then you think that everybody will know about your pain, what you escape, and everybody is there to help you. But unfortunately, it's not like that. The first time that I had a piece of paper that identify, identify me as a refugee with a picture of me on it. That is the only identity that I had here. So I stayed there and then long wait agony to wait your hearing and you don't know if you get rejected or you get accepted. That is another trauma that I get it here. And it's hard to be connected because we were speaking little English, even if we know at school, it's not like, you know, when you live here, you know that you don't know, just slightly, you know, you can hear, but the words, the, the food, the roads, the names is all different. So you feel like lost, you feel scared again. So it passed too, but through this the journey, a lot of good people that helps refugee organizations, even uh, people that they met you, they are good people, good soul over there. There are a lot of things that you find that's easy, but you still, you have the nostalgic of home. Uh, you're still refugee, you feel still refugee. Something doesn't go from you. You are not in your country. Yeah. When I read your story, one thing you said how after years of living in Canada, years for your refugee claim, the hearing, and then so many other efforts to get a travel document. And one of the things you said is that sometimes you hated having that because once you give it to the officials, they know you are a refugee and they start assuming that you might not be okay and it all goes south from there. Uh, I personally traveled with that travel document for refugees before I became Canadian. And every single time I have to be stopped, I have to be double searched, I have to be taken to a room. It is the ultimate struggle. Back to you, Diare, and to your story. Ahrit started telling us about how tough it is to start over in a new country. And since we are talking about this, I want you to share your perspective on that and how did everything uh, start for you in Canada and your first days here? Actually, it wasn't difficult for me in terms of living with in a diverse, diverse country because I, I love it to live in a country like Canada. But when I came here, I met with many different people from different geographies, different backgrounds. It was part of my dream. And I, I also feel safety here and stable. There's no fear. Um, but the problem is I sometimes I had an admirer. I was 
returned to my country, I, someone attacked me or I became a sleepwalker. It was really difficult for the first year. And most of my dreams, most of my nightmare about my home country, uh, it was really tough. And uh, after my move here, the situation of political situation and economic situation get worse and get danger. I found myself like more powerless people. I couldn't do anything for my country. At least I wasn't there just be among them, support them, but I was far from them. And just I was thought about them. And it was also not easy to uh, find a job here. I just started as a, like a newborn here with the ID, with, you know, other stuff. But in terms of safety, living with different people, people who respect you, who try to help you, who support you, who let you to do whatever you want, uh, that was really amazing. I don't feel uh, homesick, but the, when I think about the people in my home country, when they suffer from there, it's really hard for me and um, it's difficult. I am glad you can always see the bright side along with the other bad side. And I like your optimism. Can you tell us about your life today? I, I love, actually, I satisfy my life. I love what I have. Talking with the wonderful people like you, Akbarit, and uh, other guys here. And just, I shared my story with people that have sympathy for me. They show empathy with me. Day by day, I learn here. I, I want to get more about the Canadian culture, Canadian society, Canadian communities. So I, I don't come here to make money. I came here to be safe and learn. Actually, I am planning to um, study another master's degree in political science. I also like to start my journalism work as a researcher. It's part of my goal, but I don't want to reveal other goals until I, I reached. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wish you all the best. Uh, Akbarit, now I would like to ask you the same question. Tell us and uh, tell everybody on the show today, how is your life now? I would like to congratulate you on behalf of every uh, listener for your Canadian citizenship. You got it in 2019. Congratulations. Tell us about your life now. What do you do and what are your hopes? Yeah, I already, you know, built my uh, career as a journalist in Eritrea. When you come here, they didn't accept whatever you have, whatever certificate, whatever. You have to do it from scratch. You have to start it from zero. So yeah, that is the frustrated part of uh, when we come as a refugee. Here in Canada, you have to go all the way to high school to finish the school, the high school diploma and apply for study. I tried to do every to go to school, to learn English and apply some to higher education if I can do, I can do anything and stay in my career because I love to be journalist. I was doing that. I tried to stay on my passion and to build my career, but it didn't work. So I did everything when you come here. You are no one. So you have to leave all your pride, all your life behind. Like I started doing dishwashing and hard work, cleaning, everything. Uh, in between, I was going to classes, uh, uh, like English classes and some short courses. I, was take, I tried to build myself, but it was hard. Oh, I'm talking about 50 above is not hard, it's not easy when you are young, you can, uh, you know, you can catch everything fast, but when you are old, like me, it's not easy to build a new career, so it's always a struggle, then finally I take the healthcare assistant course, I, you know, I like to help people, 
That is one thing that I want to do, like helping my parents back home. They were old. I was, I was supposed to be there and help them and, uh, you know, be in, in their old age. I cannot do it with my parents. So I decided to help here. In fact, since I came here the first year, I went to the community and I help all people. And now professionally, I take the course uh, as a health care and doing that as a casual work. And uh, I want to write. I like writing the English is a problem still, but on the way, and I want to do always this. Yeah, I'm trying to help people that they need my help, you know. Yeah, yeah. thanks for sharing and thanks for your uh, resilience and for your ability to survive and keep going. And, you know, it is one, it's, it's the reality here. A lot of people have to change careers. You know, personally speaking, I was a medical doctor in training in Syria. Now I am a college student. I study computers now. With that, I'd like to thank you so much, Akhbarit and Diare. Thank you so much for joining me today. On behalf of all our listeners, thank you. This is Mohamed Saleh, and you have been listening to the Global Migration Podcast Season 2. This podcast is available thanks to the support of UBC's Center for Migration Studies. We thank them for their support. This podcast has been recorded over Zoom on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. Thank you to our guests, Diari and Akhbarit, and thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to support the book project and the GoFundMe campaign behind this project, you can find the link in the episode's description. Thank you.